welcome to Offwatch, a podcast by the Ocean Race. This episode's guest was Annie Lush, a two-time match racing world champion, an Olympian, and twice a competitor in the Ocean Race. Now, the interview was recorded back at the beginning of May with Annie under lockdown in Spain, but she took the time to talk us through moving from Olympics into killboats and offshore, sailing with Team Brunel in the last edition and that injury in the Southern Ocean, plus her insights into the Amoka 60 and what we can expect in the next edition. Olympian Annie Lush has competed in two editions of the Ocean Race, first with Team SEA back in 2014-15, then with Team Brunel in the 2017-18 edition. In the first, she earned her stripes, not least with a leg win into Lisbon. On the second, her sailing was cut short after a nasty rogue wave washed her off her feet and smashed her on the deck. Now, having to cheer her teammates on from the sidelines wasn't the position that she wanted to be in, but... Annie can be just as influential ashore as she can be on the water. Now, here's where the Magenta Project comes in. Pushing young female sailors up to the front lines of sailings and getting them onto the boats for the future. She is one to watch and she is one that the future teams call when they need a sailor who knows how to build a good, strong team. Uh, Annie, thank you for, for talking to me. Um, there's a lot about your sailing that I want to get into, and I know that you're the person to talk to about the Amoka 60s, what we can expect in terms of some of the performance. Um, and I'm going to get to that, but I know how many young sailors there are in Britain, at the very least, who come to you for advice and a little bit of guidance about where to go. When people talk to you about the ocean race and what they might be able, um, what they might have to do to get to that start line, What's the key part, that key personality trait or skill that you are constantly having to bring up? Well, that's the million dollar question there now. Um, I think, you know, you need a lot of different skills, but it's definitely to do with a personality trait fundamentally. And I would say resilience is the biggest thing. Probably an overused word. Um, but applies in Olympic campaigns and ocean races, but yeah, certainly in the Volvo ocean race. And as an example, I remember with team SCA, we sort of didn't really know where we were going to stand in the race. Um, we at the beginning certainly weren't winning. And I just remember our coaches saying, you know, you just got to keep going in this race. Crazy things will happen. And I mean, they did, you know, competitors got taken out by running into islands and, losing mass and you know and we got better but yeah you just got to keep going because it doesn't really matter where you start it's where you finish was that what was trying to be constructed with that team because you know i i'm wondering about those training camps in lanzarote with team sca i mean you guys started with such um such a direction, or at least that's what it looked like from, from the outside. You know, what, what were those first few months of let's get ready to take this challenge on? What, what was that like? Um, I mean, it was, well, for me, it was a really exciting start. The actual start of the trials for me was in Southampton and I stepped on board Puma with the Volvo 70, which SA had bought as our training boat because it was before the 65s had been built. And uh, we set out of the Solent, you know, on a Volvo 70. It was like a dream come true just after the 2012 Olympics. And um, 
yeah, within about five minutes, I was completely converted to offshore sailing. Um, and, you know, and it was really an exciting few months. There was obviously, the trials went on a long time. There were a lot of girls trying. There was a lot of competition. But personally, I pretty much spent my life trialing. I mean, through all of my Olympic campaigns before that, for the boat race, even as a rower. Um, so kind of being watched every day and, and, and coached and, and trialing is sort of part of every day. So I loved it. I mean, going to sail on a 70 as well, that's a pretty good start because obviously the 65s, they've proved themselves. Uh, two editions, certainly in the last edition, they delivered on, on terms of the performance. Um, but what was it like going from a Yingling, which is the boat that probably outside the ocean race, or certainly before the ocean race, you were very well known for in terms of all your Olympic sailing and all your campaigns. So we go from the Yingling, it's a slower boat. You know, I mean, it's a tough boat to sail, but it's a slower boat. Then you jump on board the, the 70. Was there a moment where you had to sort of, you know, hang on as that first sail was trimmed on? Yeah, well, I think we sailed out of the Solent on, you know, like a J4 and a reefed main going about 14 and a half knots. And I thought that the world was on fire. Like this was the <laughs> coolest thing ever because, yeah, I mean, you know, eight knots down a surfing wave in England was pretty much where I'd been at before that. Um, little did I know that we were going to be averaging, you know, over 27 knots in the race. Um, so it was, it was incredible. But I remember as we were finishing that sort of first trial or training one, we were sailing from Southampton to Lanzarote, where we were going to be training with Team SCA for, the, for a year, more than a year after that. And, uh, and we'd be, we were allowed to do everything on board. It was a fantastic experience. You know, we're driving at night. And for me, it was just like watching orange numbers dancing around, not really sure what I was doing. Um, and, and, and realizing how hard it was to sail the boat fast consistently. And then as we came into Lanzarote and it's quite a shifty breeze coming over the land, Magnus was driving and um, he, I remember just watching the numbers and it's like someone had fixed them still, you know, his apparent wind angle didn't move, his true wind angle didn't move. And even though the wind was going up and down. And I remember one of the other trialists looking over at me and she was like, we've got a long way to go. <laughs> <laughs> what, what was the classic mistake? that surely you must have made in the beginning. I mean, for, for, I'm always used to seeing dinghy sailors go onto offshore boats and burn themselves out in the first 20 minutes. You know, were you a culprit of that? I think all the girls will tell you was uh, my choice of dressing. Um, I generally, I mean, I think it was, you know, five minutes into setting off the solar and I'd lost a glove. And then 10 minutes later, I probably lost my hat and I'm already drenched and thinking this wasn't really a big problem. But, you know, you soon learn that, get wet five minutes into a 28 day leg and that's not good news you you guys train so hard and as you said you know you spent a year in Lanzarote I'm sure you kind of lived and and breathed it I'm wondering whether there was almost a danger that it was almost like too long I mean you must have been chomping at the bit to actually get to the start line get on the race and and perform or you know compare yourself to some people I don't think you can prepare for too long. Um, it's all in the preparation. But for sure, the fact with the 65s that you weren't allowed to line up against anyone else was mm -hmm. a real hindrance for us because when we turned up in Alicante, I mean, I remember arriving, arriving, doing the delivery into Alicante and 
just seeing the other boats and we just didn't really know any of the other teams you know in the ocean uh, sorry the olympics i'm used to lining up against people that i've raced hundreds and thousands of times probably by the end of my career and here we are turning up in a race where we just didn't really know anyone i mean i knew ian walker because he'd coached me for some olympic sailing before but beyond that these were just a whole different sort of breed of sailors to me and we were going to have to line up against them in our first race and that was such a sort of weird thing to do excuse me if i if i get this wrong i mean you're in it so you know how it is but from where i see the race I just see it very normal now to have both genders represented on the teams and on the racetrack. But of course, back then with Team SEA, you were an all-female team and that was only the second one in the race's history. Was there was there any sort of... Um, was there a missed beat with any of the teams in terms of welcoming you? Did some go a little further, go out of their way? Or was it just, you're a sailor, I'm a sailor, let's race? I think with Team SCA, it was just that we weren't known. And I don't know if it's such a gender thing as just, we just weren't experienced. I mean, we had a few girls on board that had been part of Amasport too, but that was 12 years ago before, you know, the time we started Team SCA. So a long time ago. And other than that, we hadn't been in the race. So it was just like turning up as the new kids on the block. You know, no one knew us. And also we didn't really know each other before we'd started as building as team SCA. I mean, we came from very different backgrounds. We had to, because no one had the perfect experience. So we had single handed offshore sailors, Olympic sailors, match racers. Some people had done some crude offshore sailing before. It was such a mishmash of sailors. Um, so it wasn't, you know, we just sort of weren't known. And then of course you get into the ocean race village these days and you realize that half these guys that are competing against each other in this race were actually sailing with each other around the world, world the race before that and against each other race before that. And in the, such a history, people do this race over and over and over again. So we just weren't really part of that club. And of course, this is your first edition. This is it. So you've spent all this time training. I mean, it was, it's impossible to underplay just, I mean, Team SEA owned Alicante. I mean, it was incredible when you went to Alicante. All it was was Team SEA banners, everything. It was amazing. I'm sure you felt that pressure on your shoulders. Or was it sort of, you know, to use a bad pun, wind in the sails? I think the pressure was definitely there. I mean, I don't think it was so much by the presence that SEA had. I mean, that was fantastic, I think. And actually that did help us in, in the end and the amount of support we had and just an incredible shore crew and team behind us. And I think if you look back now, I think all of us would say, all of the girls would say, it was such a privilege to be involved in that campaign because of the amount of support we had. But we did feel an immense pressure. I think as the race went on more and more, um, a pressure to perform because it wasn't just about us doing well in that race to prove how good we were. It was kind of like, if we mess this up, there might not be any women in this race ever again. And this is the moment that we could change that. And I remember really feeling that pressure and in one leg actually in particular, where I really felt we needed to be performing by then. And we still hadn't got a result on the board and just feeling that we were letting down <laughs> all the other female sailors out there basically. What happened then with the leg win? Well, how, how, how did that affect you? Yeah, I think, um, well, personally for me, that actually the leg before the leg win, I wasn't on board. I'd got really sick in, I think it was leg six. Um, and then I couldn't do the transatlantic and wasn't on board for that 
that leg. Um, I think I'd also just, a bit like you said, as an Olympic sailor, I think I'd approach the race kind of like a load of Olympic races joined together. And by after the Southern Ocean, I'd pretty much broken myself. Um, but anyway, I had that, that leg off bef before we were arrived into Lisbon. And um, I remember finally sort of watching a lot of the video and listening to all the feedback and just realizing how far we had come. I know that certainly personally, when I rejoined in Lisbon, ready for that leg, I felt like, oh no, actually, I'm looking at all the guys' teams. They all look tired. You know, they've changed a lot of the crew. We haven't changed anybody. We're still the same team. We've stayed together. And I could see a lot of strengths that we had. So I think we started that leg in a slightly different mindset. We decided to just play to our strengths rather than worry about our weaknesses. And, um, and it worked. So you conclude that edition with the leg win. And I'm sure just bucket loads of experience and sort of lessons learned. Then we go into the next edition of the race where the rules change and it incentivizes um, mixed teams. How do you line up on board Team Brunel? W were you digging for that option or did it come to you? Um, I think uh, as, as all sailors know, and if I was going to give any advice to any young sailors, it doesn't just come to you. You know, you have to work at these options. Um, so, um, yeah, for sure. After Team SCA, we all wanted to do the race again. I mean, ideally, I think continue as we were, but unfortunately, that um, you know something else happened internally with the sponsor, and that wasn't an option because just as that race was finishing, we felt ready to launch. You know, we now we'd got that experience and we kind of knew what we were doing, and we we were excited to go again. Yeah. Um, so it was very disappointing when we couldn't stay together. But then, of course, the new rule came in, and we. Um, working with the race with the Magenta Project and, and excited to bring in new girls as well. Um, but yeah, I approached uh, Bauer Becking. To be honest, it was partly because I, I knew that he hadn't been a great fan of Team SCA. Um, and he'd sort of said openly when they brought in the new rule that he didn't think he was going to sell with any girls on board. Mm, I remember I that. I suppose for me, that was a little bit like a red flag to a bull. Um, and I phoned him and said, could I come sailing with him and he could see what he thought. And and what happened? You know, you, you, you step on board and like you say, I'm almost wondering whether you're back into that mindset of if I get this right, I change your opinion for the benefit of not just myself, but for a lot of sailors after me as well. I think, um, yeah, well, we started the campaign. We were very late um, and we had a few new sailors as well into the into the race. I mean, very good sailors, but very new to offshores. Yeah, well, well like you say, a couple of new sailors, a couple of couple of little sailors from America's Cup, I think. I think they just come from a bit bit of a win down there, didn't they? Yeah, so we had three cup sailors, and actually, um, <laughs> well, two from um, Team New Zealand, um, Carlos and um, Pete Burling, and um, so Carlo. Um, grinder on New Zealand before and, and obviously Pete Burling helming um, and then we had Carl Langford who'd just lost to them um, <laughs> but um, you know n none of those guys really have that much offshore experience certainly not um, sort of ocean race experience and yeah we had to build a team and it was it was it was great to be honest um, Bauer was pretty open from the beginning and for me it was get to get to sail with the most experienced person in the race. That was really the goal. 
because the thing we lacked on Team SCA, and I always felt this, it's not that we didn't have any guys, it's just that we didn't have any experience. And not having any guys meant we didn't have any experience because there hadn't been women in the race. Um, so suddenly I get to sail with Bauer and KP, who, you know, seven and eight races each or whatever, they've done an incredible amount of laps. So just getting to sail with people of that experience was a real opportunity. That boat just looks like a who's who of, you know, your fantasy draft of sailors from various different disciplines, maybe not, you know, all the offshore experience. But, you know, the stories and all the rest of it that must have been sort of shared about what was going on behind the curtains of the carp and previous editions. I won't put you on the spot to get any of those, but I'm sure there were some good rail conversations. But unfortunately, you guys don't come out of the blocks firing. I mean, that first leg... You know, I think you, it was pretty tight. It was like six minutes or something like that, but you are at the back of the fleet. Um, again, was that something that was being discussed as a team that first few legs, we're going to have to learn our way or did it come as a shock? I think we, we knew we were late into the preparation. I mean, really late. And um, it wasn't sort of your ideal lead up to the race at all. But I think that probably the first couple of legs were a shock because in we'd done some preliminary races before that um, and we had been doing quite well in those, you know, given what the equipment we'd been sailing with. Um, so I don't know if shock is the right word. We, we knew we had to work hard, but it was disappointing. Yeah. And then you made some changes with, I think it was your dagger boards, you know, I'm presumably leaving no stone un unturned. It's a one design boat, the VO65. What was it like for people like, um, you know, Burling on board, used to the design, used to the, well, that foil's not working, we'll change it. That sail's not, not working, we'll change it. Was it, um, did you feel like, you know, did they feel like their options were limited to try and find speed or was it more, it's one design, we're, our, our equipment's the same as theirs. So the speed's gotta be in here somewhere. Yeah, well, I mean, I think for Pete, yes, he comes from the cup, but also he comes from Olympic sailing and the 49er is, you know, one design as well, um, perhaps different in, in, to the 65, but the same idea. And uh, so, no, I think they understood the rules, but it was certainly with Pete, you could just tell he was always thinking about tiny, tiny details to make a difference, how we could stack something differently, how we could move something differently to just try and, you know, it's all those tiny pieces the more one design is you have to pay attention to every single little detail to try and get that speed edge and then we come to leg three which is obviously back into the southern ocean um and and it it's it was tough on you we'll come to the injury in just a second um when you went into the southern ocean on that time did you um presumably you're in good shape you're in good spirits you know this is this is not your first time down there um or were you in any way yeah, tired? Was there a chink in the armour? Um, I think when we set off from Cape Town, we were still establishing as a team, for sure. Mm. But um, no, I was excited to go back into Southern Ocean again. Louis Balkan had just joined the team as well. I mean, he was always planned to come in, but that was when he was coming in. And I was really excited to be sailing with him because I'd been friends with him through the race before, got to know him in the 14-15 edition. And, um, you know, I knew he was a fantastic sailor. So it was great to be on deck with him. And 
yeah, I, I also, you know, we were showing good performance at the beginning of that leg. So I felt like, here we go. And then, of course, um, you get taken out by, by a wave. Well, I mean, that that's as far as I know about it. What was happening? Where were you? And, and yeah, how did it kind of unravel, I guess? Yeah, we were diving for the ice skates um, and we were setting up to dive. So, so the ice skates is uh, sort of not obviously an actual gate, but coordinates that the, the race give us to keep us safe from the icebergs. And we were approaching that zone. Um, so we were setting up to jibe. Um, I was on deck and um, I'd gone to set up the pit for the jibe and then come back to grind on the aft pedestal. Um, and I was tethered on, but on quite a long tether, I suppose. Um, and yeah, just got hit by a wave. And we were getting hit by waves all the time, but must have not been hanging on hard enough. And um, I got shot to the back of the boat and I sort of felt myself get washed into the, the guard wires at the back. And as I landed, I just, I've had quite a lot of injuries now in my career and I, I hadn't really felt something quite like that before. So I knew it probably wasn't that good. Because you've taken knocks before and you've, I'm sure you've been swept off your feet before by waves. As you say, you know, you were a, you were a rower. And I mean, has anyone that's seen the training regime for a rower will know it's it's pretty tough. So it was an instant reaction that you thought, this one's going to be a little bit more than just a bruise. Yeah, I think as I did it, I... I felt this very strange pain going up my back and down my leg. And, um, and the problem was I was now to leeward and obviously more and more waves are still crashing. And, you know, the guys are trying to slow down, but there's only so much slowing down you can do in the Southern Ocean when you're hooning downwind with a lot of sail up. Um, and there's only a few of us on deck. Everyone else is about to come up to dry, but they're not up yet. So it takes a while to actually slow down. Um, so I was still being hit by more waves. And I remember sort of Abby was screaming at me like, get up, get up, because I needed to get up on the high side to get out of being pounded by more waves but I realized I just couldn't really I couldn't stand up my well my leg just sort of wouldn't let me did they have to help you through because I mean the next thing that I know is you're obviously confined to your bunk how did you get from basically in the lion's den with the waves coming over to some relative safety um so I couldn't get there myself and then um Bauer and, and Kyle and Carlo came out and I remember Bauer saying to me, you know, can I drag you? And like, yes. And they just dragged me across the deck. Um, and then I think it was Kyle and Carlo that um, lifted me down into the bunk. <laughs> and believe it or not, we'd actually practiced this scenario in our medical training because Kyle, Carlo and myself were the medics that were being trained. Um, and uh, we'd done this exact scenario, I think, with me being the patient. Um, so it was a little bit like we were rerunning our MSOS training. So, you know, well done, Spike and all the team. It was, it was, it was perfect. Um, but no, it was very hard in that condition for them to do it. And, you know, I, I, it's amazing they managed to get me down flat. The thing is, of course, when you do the training, the idea is that you have a backboard and you're keeping the back straight and you don't know what the injuries are. In reality, when you're underwater, still going 20-something knots, and someone says, can I drag you off the deck? Yes. <laughs> There's no other option. There's no time to get the backboard out. So I'm, I'm just trying to understand. I, I mean, I've, I haven't sailed with you, I don't think. I've sailed against you, you know, way behind, you know, as, as, as you're up near the front. But you do have a reputation for somebody who... Um, 
you are tough on the racetrack and you do sports that require going, well, there's your pain barrier, but the victory is just above it. I'm trying to, I'm trying to um, think about whether you were able to say, this one's bad and I need to think about the longer game and I'm going to stay in my bunk. Or was it a case of, I've got to get out of this bunk, I've got to get back on, on deck. W what was the battle you were having? Yeah, I think it was, I was not a good patient, really. Um, to begin with, I didn't have any option. I had to stay in the bunk. And I mean, and straight away I was in the bunk and then obviously they had to go and jibe. So I was kind of lying in the bunk, waiting for probably 25, 30 minutes before the jibe was completed. And in that time, I could sort of tell that I was all right. I mean, as in probably didn't have internal bleeding or didn't start feeling worse. So I had an injury, but it, you know, the worry in the middle of the Southern Ocean is not just so much an injury. It's more, is there something more severe going on? And then uh, KP came off watch and walked past my bunk and said, you know, we're not even halfway through this leg yet. So you better come good soon. <laughs> and, um, you know, and he was right. Um, and I, then I really struggled to stay in my bunk uh, after a few days. Was that something that KP, um, Bowie, were they, did they have to sort of put a hand on your shoulder and say, you know, come on, rest up? Yeah, I mean, Bowie was definitely saying, you know, you don't need to get back on deck um, and, you know, making sure I didn't do anything stupid. But it's hard because no one actually knows what I've done. Yeah. Um, by four days into being injured, I was sort of moving around, helping wherever I could could really bailing making people cups of coffee but it's really tough in that part of the race we're driving along the ice gate and the guys were just knackered um watching them come off watch at night and you know when you're one person out of the watch system that makes a big difference because suddenly people are just grinding or driving the whole time um so i suppose i just felt really guilty um it's freezing cold it's awful being on deck anyway and now people are having to put in longer hours because i'm injured so yeah, I really wanted to get back on deck and I, I did go back on deck. When you were incapacitated in your deck, I'm just uh, in your bunk, sorry. I'm wondering, were they stacking you from side to side? <laughs> um, I mean, again, Bow obviously said I didn't need to change for the jibes, but <laughs> perhaps as you highlighted me being me, I felt I, I did. And <laughs> at least if I wasn't helping anyone, I didn't want to be a disadvantage by keeping my whatever 75 80 kilos at that point on the wrong side so um our poor obr um i was pretty much forcing him to help me across the boat like an old granny in every single jibe uh yeah his job get... changed his job description changed in my leg. <laughs> yeah he's just he's walking zimmer frame it's fine well when i went into hospital on christmas day um in melbourne which is i felt very bad for that doctor christmas day the last thing he wants a stupid ocean race sailor broken themselves at sea on Christmas Day um, and I it came out of hospital and yeah I was in a cast because it turned out not only had I hurt my back I'd well, broken my back I'd also broken my foot in two places. Sorry sorry hang on hang on sorry let, let me just rewind you had broken your back? Um, well I'd broken a bone yeah the L1 yeah um, so yeah. I got to the Christmas dinner that the team were having and I um, mean you know, I told them I was going to hospital for a checkup and obviously now I arrive with a cast and news that I've actually <laughs> broken a bone in my back um, at which point, yeah, I think they all thought uh, I was pretty stupid for having got back on deck. Carlo's summary was probably the best, which I think you said, uh, Lush, yeah, there's a thin line between um, 
tough and stupid and you've crossed it well the you know unfortunately your loss our gain because you then came in and you you did help us quite a bit in the office you know you you were there when we were doing the arrivals in the hague you were with me when we were we were commentating on that um what was that like because you know i quite like being in the commentary seat it's quite an honor but i'm guessing it wasn't the seat that you wanted i mean for sure it was really hard not to rejoin the race i think yeah it's well no one in sport is really a quitter and you know you always want to stay with your team um but joining you in the commentary box now is definitely you know still a plus <laughs> um, and actually it was it was such an exciting finish i mean it was a great place to to watch it from but um i did get to work with Volvo um, and and the team um, for the rest of the race. So it was great still to feel involved and be able to see everyone. I mean, so much of the ocean race is just this, this big family traveling around the world. So the biggest thing I felt, as well as not being in the sporting side of it when I was injured and was out, was also that I just kind of missed everyone. So it was great once the race got back to Europe to have the opportunity to kind of rejoin it, even from behind the screen. Well, let's look ahead then to the next edition. Because obviously the, the first thing that everyone wonders when one race wraps up is which one of these big stars are we going to see again in the next starting pack? And I understand that you're on the cards at the moment. Team Germany, you're with that team. Right now, um, nothing is too certain. But what's been the preparation so far for Team Germany? How, how close are you guys to the start line, do you think? Yeah, Offshore Team Journey have been running for, for a while and um, I actually got to sail with them last year. The skipper, um, Robert Staniak, I've known throughout my Olympic career, actually. In fact, we've had quite parallel Olympic careers. So, you know, I've known them a long time and they put in a lot of work to get to the start line. So we're ready. We have a boat, um, we have a team, you know, we have support and... Um, in fact, just before sort of this global pandemic really came to the forefront, we were about to get into the next phase of training and, and, and getting the boat ready for the race. And part of getting the boat ready for the race is, you know, this is an Imoka. And you were saying earlier that, you know, the next jump is kidding it out with the foiling system. Yeah, um, the, the boat we have is a, is a refitted Amoka and yeah, the next step is definitely to, to put the foils on the boat and the boat's currently in the UK, you know, was about to be ready to, to do this. At the moment, of course, we don't know what's going to happen and I think, you know, we're very lucky that everyone from our team is, is safe and well and obviously there's much bigger things going on at the moment so we need to focus on those. But yeah, the next step for the Amokas will certainly be the foils talk me through then sailing in Imoka because um certainly from the limited video footage th that we've seen of ex ocean race teams going on to the Imokas I mean it couldn't be more different I mean let, let's start with the cockpit it's a very different experience being in the cockpit of the 60 from the 65 yeah um I first got to go on to the, the 60 in, in Kiel where we actually launched the boat and, and christened it Einstein. And um, 
we did a little bit of sailing and I was grinding with Phil, who's one of our sailors and is a fin sailor. And you realize that the two of you trying to fit even onto the grinder, just two people is, is quite a challenge in that, <laughs> in that boat. Definitely designed for the smaller French sailor. <laughs> but the canopy, I mean, it's going to be such a big feature because, uh, so, so two questions. One, if you come out on deck, do you need to actually wear your wet weather gear? And two, where on earth does the helm position themselves so that they've got a good view forward? Oh, well, very good questions. I mean, I think you can definitely help out in the pit without putting your wet weather gear on. So that's, that's, that's <laughs> a big win. But um, of course, as everyone knows from offshore sailing, or as I learned in Team SCA, <laughs> Sam Davies, DiGafari, you're going to be very here to please, you know, happy to hear this. Um, you, you always need to grow out with your kit on because you might be getting the pit ready, but then something might have gone wrong at the mast and someone's got to go up there. So if you're not ready, it's going to have happened. But um, it's definitely more comfortable with that nice big shield until you go to drive. And then uh, we're in the middle of the fast net, sending it on the, the throw, on the fractional, uh, definitely need to drive, definitely can't be on the autopilot, waves, and yeah, trying to find a comfortable position to drive from, pretty hard. And the speeds of the boats, I mean, obviously, uh, offshore team Germany at the moment, it's, it's, it's a conventional setup to, you know, for want of a better term. Um, the speed of the 60 compared to the 65, I mean, you know, it, it's smaller. Yeah, it's smaller, but it is so much lighter. And <laughs> you just feel that the second you're on board. I mean, I don't know, somehow, I knew the 65 was a bit of a monster. Um, and even from the 70s, which were a monster as well, but the 65 was heavy for its size. It's for a good reason, because they were so robust. I mean, they're going to go three times around the world. I think it was incredible, but definitely heavy. And then you get on the 60 and it's just a different world. I mean, I was thinking, how are we going to sail something with so few people? And then you go to pick up a sail or try and hoist a sail and, you know, hoisting the biggest sail is like hoisting the smallest sail on the 65. It's, it's a lot lighter. So it requires less power to do things and the acceleration is, is good. The crew size is smaller then than the 65, of course. We're talking about five people being on board with the 60. But the space down below, is it going to be a case of, you know, <laughs> I mean, there's hot bunking and then there's doubling up in actual physical space. How much room do you have down there to breathe? Yeah, it's really not very big down there. And um... Because one of the things as well, that somebody pointed out to me not long ago is, of course, if you've got five people on board, you're having to take five people's provisions, water, kit and everything. So it's not just five people, it's five people's luggage. Yeah, this is true now, but also remember that we don't stop anywhere, hopefully, <laughs> for dinner. <laughs> so there will always be a minimum of two people on deck. So the maximum amount of kit below and people would probably be three at any one okay. time. But even so, um, there is not much space. And I, I suppose, you know, it'd be interesting to see how people sort of refit the below you know this is not a one strict one design so you can do what you want and it's going to be i'm sure some creative solutions to that of how to stack people and kit um certainly on our boat currently even to get to the bunk the single bunk that there is um you can't be fin sized you just kind of have to like post your shoulders through to crawl into this hole <laughs> so um, there might be some modifications on our boat for sure a lighter boat then 
as you say, the 65 is heavy for a reason. Three times it's going to go around the planet. And I think it's quite remarkable as well when you look back at the 65, especially the conditions of the last edition, that the boats really did hold up well. When you're sailing the 60, do you get a sense that some of the... The stabilizers have been removed. There's there's a little bit less armor plating between you and the danger. So I mean, this this is probably going to for me. I think this is going to be the the biggest question, the biggest kind of edge of the design. Because on the one hand, you have got people sailing these boats around the world single handed, but obviously that's at quite a different intensity to how you can sail when you're fully crewed, and you know. These ocean races, they're sort of animals. They're going to push these things pretty hard. So then you've got a lot of decisions to make about how robust you're going to make your boat and how much weight you're going to add to do that. And we were talking about foils, and you know this is definitely something to think about in terms of foils. I mean, how extreme do you want to go? And on the other hand, also to win the race, you've got to get round. So mm. this is going to be, I think, the crux of the race. It's going to demand quite a bit, as does every edition on the teams. I remember something that you said to me when we were in The Hague um, and we were talking about the female rule at the time. And I remember you said something and it really st stuck with me where I was talking about, you know, the strength on board the boat. And you said, no one's gonna pick Andrew Cape as a grinder, but you'd pick him because he brings something else to the teams. I'm paraphrasing, you said it better. Um, KP didn't say it like that. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Maybe he is a good grinder. Who knows? Um, but I think that's a really good point. Actually, is is I think from a spectator point of view, we just think of powerhouses, powerhouses, and I'm sure you've got to be resilient and strong. You've got to be able to contribute. But with any of the teams that are coming into this, let's say with the Amoka, are you trying to pick five clones? Are you trying to pick, well, you're going to have this, you're going to have this? I mean, when you are sort of imagining the future, how does that team, how does that perfect team that we're all desperately trying to get to, how does it look? I mean, I think in, in offshore sailing as a whole, it demands a more rounded sailor. I mean, um, anyway, but for sure with the Amoka, yeah, I don't, you don't want clones. You, I mean, you definitely need some sort of, navigation specialism which I certainly don't have and and you know um and you need certain specialities but you will need people who can trim and drive I mean it's the thing that struck me the most on the fast net well no probably two things one was you know I think like everybody we always say you know I don't know if I'm going to do this again I don't know if I'm going to do this race again I don't know if I'm going to the Olympics again and then I stepped on the 60 I mean, we, the first time we'd sailed it, we don't have any foils yet. And I just thought it was the coolest thing ever. Um, so that was one thing. Um, but the next thing was just how completely exhausted it was after the fastnet and how shorthanded it felt. And it is because five is, you know, especially if one person goes injured or is sick or is down, I mean, you feel so shorthanded. And suddenly if you need to be driving, depending on exactly how works with autopilots and everything but you're gonna to have to drive a lot and then you feel very short-handed so yeah people are going to be need to be pretty well-rounded and in terms of strength 
yeah, it's not how much you can lift. It's it's different kind of strength. Yeah, the strength that you need when you're cold and, and tired and seasick, definitely not the, the strength that I have. Lastly then, final question. There's your shape of your team. You've, you, you've got your five individuals. For a team that's going to have you in it, as somebody that's had some success, had some highs, had some lows, had some times where, as you were described, where you're in your bunk and you're just wishing that, you know, you could get back out, but, you know, everything's against you. What would you say to your team? You say, look, I'm Annie Lush. When I'm down, when I'm, when I'm hurt, when I'm, when I'm homesick, when I'm tired, when I'm cold, what, what would you say? What's the simplest way that someone can go, I've got you a little something, a little treat? What's your go-to? I'm back in the game. Thanks very much for that. Is it a word? Is it a food? Is it a what? We're on 100% of the numbers. Oh. Performance-driven. Uh, well, yeah, I think for me, if I, you know, if we know that, we're, well, that also means you're getting, you know, to the finish quickly. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you know, no, I mean, I think if you, you know that the boat's going well, then yeah, you, you can relax. And um, that's what we're out there to do. So yeah i think the thing i loved the most in team sda you know looking back on it was um i was working with justin metro as a, as a trimmer it was such a big challenge for us in that race because we really started without much knowledge i mean we'd been coached but we just hadn't been out there and there's so many different conditions something that i think a lot of olympic sailors maybe don't appreciate is that you've spent i'd spent 10 years of my life learning to be very fast upwind and downwind i mean they'd even gotten rid of reaching within my first year of olympic sailing the trapezoid courses have gone suddenly to go around the world you need to sail every single angle in every single wind condition in every single wave condition well haven't we done that before um so a lot of us hadn't so that takes a lot of time and you know that's a lot of different skills to learn and i and i remember working with justine and sca and you know the point that we sort of like through the race could just tick off those angles and those conditions that we could get to 100 percent on it was it was amazing and just being able to work through that process that felt like such a win and uh, that was definitely what kept me going through that race just knowing that slowly but surely we were you know ticking those off i mean i'm guessing that's why you're where you are and i'm where i am because for me it would just be a kit kat and then i'd be then i'd be fine um I can't yeah. deny the benefits of a Kit Kat junkie. You're absolutely <laughs> right there, Niall. But there we go. Now you're being honest. But you've really got to watch out because at the equator, all the chocolate, when you peel off the wrapper, is on the wrapper and it's so disappointing. Oh. Yeah. Okay, and in the I'm Southern gonna... Ocean, it's so solid, you can't break it. So there's a window for the Kit Kat junkie in that race. Well, that's fine because I'd eat them all in the first couple of days. You know, when, when we leave the dock, I'd be I'd be so seasick, so depressed to be out there. You know, that's that, that's fine. Um, Annie, thank you very much. Um, I really, uh, yeah, I, I really hope that w we see more people being nurtured into the race, uh, more young people. You know, buy yourself and buy the Magenta Project, and we get another chance to see you uh, take a, take another lap of the planet on the sixty. That would be uh, that would be pretty good. Thank you. Well, I hope we, uh, one day now we say this and there's more girls and boys out there, but we'll see how we go. All right. Thank you very much.